Hey Lantern Cast family, I'm Chad Bolkelman and welcome to yet another installment of the Lantern Cast. This one I'm doing solo, so please don't stop listening. I'm still here uh, and doing cool things, I promise you. Uh, this is Lantern Cast presents Green Lantern, Green Arrow. That's right, we're covering the very first, uh, one of the very first uh, really historical series from any, either company of the 1970s. Uh, the Green Lantern, Green Arrow series written by Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams. And uh, this first episode, we're actually not even going to be covering any of the issues. We're going to go into the history of the comics industry leading up to the creation of the Comics Code Authority and what that means, basically, uh, for the comics industry as a whole. And tonight, I'm not going solo. I've got uh, a friend uh, a friend of the show and a uh, uh, co-host on a very popular comics co uh, show I'm sure you've heard of, CGS. If there was no CGS, there would be no Lantern cast. Uh, you guys all know that. I've got Mike Gallagher from CGS. Hey, Mike. Hello. How you doing? I'm all right, sir. How you doing tonight? Doing good. So we have our first intercompany crossover. Actually, it's not the first intercompany crossover. Well, first with me. First, first with you, yes. Yeah, because I'm the cool one. Yeah. <laughs> we heard and we can't. Um, we had Mer twice, uh, but that's uh, uh, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> um, I won't talk half as much as Mer does. <laughs> well, since during the episode we had pants on, it was just basically an uh, an April Fool's episode in which we pretended that there were podcasts from across the multiverse. And oh, nice. we found, quote-unquote, recordings from our other multiverse uh, renditions of our show. And basically, the guys had pants on, and they were just saying Earth 2 in front of everything. Oh, we're going out to the Earth 2 Comic Con, and, you know, just goofy, crazy stuff. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, tonight, uh, as I stated, we're just going to cover uh, the comics code uh, and, and the history of the industry leading up into its creation. And this guy's... this. For everyone out there listening, this is not a definitive take. Uh, this is by no means the Encyclopedia Britannica on the industry knowledge of the comics uh, comics history and the comics code. This is just me and Mike talking about it, um, our experience with what we've read about it, um, what we think is important, what we think is uh, crazy. You know, just kind of a general discussion. Uh, so don't write letters on, hey, I can't believe you didn't call didn't talk about this or do that. Um but uh, it's just freeform discussion, guys. And uh, uh, all honesty, I've recently gotten to the comic game. My personal history with comics, if you guys are just listening to this iteration of Lantern Cast rather than the main show, um, I didn't start reading comics real heavy until the past uh, three or four years. Um, uh, in, in my younger days, I read maybe a uh, Marvel Masterworks rendition of X-Men number one. Uh, I read uh, there was a... Uh, a Nexus and uh, Magnus the Robot Fighter crossover two-issue series. I read the uh, per the second issue of that. <laughs> nice. Marvel number one. That, those were my first few comics, but I didn't really start getting heavy into it in the past few years. And it was only within the 
last year, last six months or so that I've really got a sense of I need to know where this industry that I love so much came from. I need to know its roots. Uh, and part of that is due to so many um, famous creators of names that I had learned to recognize and respect uh, for their con contribution to the industry. And so many of these people, you know, we were getting news that they were dying off, you know, and, and that I was like, you know what, I didn't get a chance to meet them at cons. I didn't get a chance to do any of this stuff yet. Um, but I really want to respect them in some way. So I thought the best way for me to do that was to really dive into the history. And it's so far turned out to be very fascinating. Um, and it, it's been it's been fun. Um, and the first thing, um, just going into it, being honest with you guys, read a book to prepare for this episode um, by uh, David Hadjdu, uh, Hadjdu, I believe. It's called The Ten Cent Plague, The Great Comic Book Scare and How It Changed America. Uh, and this is the first nonfiction book I've probably read cover to cover since high school. Um, it's awesome. It is one of the best books I've ever read, and that includes uh, fiction. So uh, it's it's so much fun to read, and it's so interesting. Now, and Mike, I don't, have you have you read this before? Um, yeah, I've read that. I've read probably three quarters of Seduction of the Innocent, and um, I've read a bunch of the transcripts. Just about all the all the hearings transcripts are available to the public. Um, it's just long, really, really long. Um, but I've, I've been reading comics since 1975 straight and hit the eighties and started taking it very seriously and, and was trying to learn as much as I could about the history of comics. It's just endlessly fascinating. Um, moved to state college, was working at a comic book store there and found out that in the, Penn State archives in their, their uh, um, rare book room. They had a copy of Seduction of the Innocent. And at that point, that's the only way you could read it was to find one of these. And, and I was going in there and, and bribing students to, because I wasn't a student there. I was bribing students to let me use their cards to, to get me into the room so I could read it in like, you know, 10, 20 pages at a clip. Um, now you can download it for free. Um, but yeah, there's there's a lot of history. It's it's something that happened that um, changed the industry completely, and it still has ramifications. Uh, a lot of people like to to try to ignore it, but um, there was enough damage that we see it now as any time some press release comes out and it hits CNN. Or uh, USA Today, though USA Today has been getting better, you get that biff, bam, pow, comics are for kids, Superman and Wonder Woman are kissing. And it's that biff, bam, pow, comics are for kids that really has its roots at, at this point in history. Absolutely. And, and I have a copy of Seduction of the Innocent, the actual book, and... I tried to start reading it for this episode, guys. I promise I tried. But it's just so dry even after uh, reading Tencent Plague that I was just like, you know what? I, I got to get this first episode out, and I feel like I got a good enough handle on it. It's And it's hard not to read that and be pissed <laughs> and want to yeah. punch Wortham in the face for what he's doing to the industry that you love so much. <laughs> and But I, I, I will say 
and and just in reading this this uh, Tencent Plague book and just knowing some of what I know about actually the the what Wortham was trying to say, I won't go so far to say as the guy had no business attacking the comics industry, uh, considering the content of the comics at the time as well as also considering the the moral quote unquote religious quote unquote climate of that time period in our American history and how everybody was kind of um, conservative and stuff. So seeing keeping that um, in mind about the history of uh, of our country as well as seeing some of the content that was coming out, I won't say he had no business whatsoever saying uh, what he said, but at the same time. It was so overgeneralized and so um, so specific to just... It was almost like he wrote it with a goal in mind of, I'm not going to get rid of this book or this book or this book or these certain types of books. He was just kind of like balls to the wall. I need to get rid of it all. I need to attack it all. It needs to go away. Like, it's every single piece of the comics industry is bad. Yeah. Yeah, he, he went overboard. Um Dark Horse has been printing uh, a series of hardcover collections called Crime Doesn't Pay um, that feature comics from that era. Mm-hmm. And um, they the, the hearings were legitimate in that there were a lot of really bad things in comics at that time. It wasn't in all comics. It was in specific comics that were you know, very upfront on the covers and in the titles. This is about crime. This is about murder. This is about infidelity. This is about these things. And Wortham being kind of a, a hack psychiatrist um, wanted some fame and he was finding it through this crusade against comic books. And he had done a crusade against television too that wasn't as successful. Um, and with this, he just kept, you know, he had some some people listening, and and he kept going and kept going. Wrote a book, got bigger, got bigger. Had book burnings, and and became kind of a a, a sensation over this that you know gave him enough power to take everything to the Supreme Court. Um, and it's it's kind of frightening how he was able to to pull all this, and and in his weird way he he started seeing things in comics that weren't really there um there there was a lot of blatant stuff um but then like if if you read the book or if you just flip through it you see the pictures like where it's it's a close-up of a drawing of batman um like where his shoulder meets his chest and then he he circles it out and and you know that's supposed to be you know a, a vagina right there and and like like really crazy stuff that he's seeing um and none of it's really there but it it has that you know that like back masking of of albums feel to it if if you if you tell people it's there then they can see it and the the climate you know the anti-commie um sentiment you know was was pervasive through our whole society at that point so people were just like yeah and people in the comic books community couldn't defend themselves like people in the entertainment industry the entertainment industry had lawyers that knew what they were doing and the comics 
uh, industry had, you know, people basically like you and me who are just, you know, guys doing a job that never encountered this kind of thing. Um, and it, it, you know, it, it was still at a point where comic artists were not really telling people that they were comic artists. You know, it was still a taboo thing. It was the low end of art. Um, so it was it was like the the right kind of environment for this kind of thing to happen. Yeah, and and for those of you um, who have no uh, past history about um, what was happening at, at the time or um, who were the Miz or anything like that, essentially it all boils down to you know how when there is a shooting in a school or any kind of uh, you know public display of violence, even the shootings in Aurora, Colorado. Um, the the media uh, eventually comes down to oh it's probably video games or violent TV shows or something like that. Basically, it's that same principle and concept, but in the 1950s they blamed comic books instead of video games. Um, and as Mike was saying earlier, you know they you know if you see some of the actual comics of that time. It's got its place in saying some of that stuff, but to outright say the comics are causing our kids to be, well, juvenile delinquents, um, that was something that kind of slowly picked up steam, and then once it kind of reached a certain um, quote-unquote popularity uh, or um, notoriety within the, the community... A man named Frederick Wortham hopped on the bandwagon right at the pinnacle of its kind of attachment into the psyche of all the parents in America, and then published a book and then tried to make you know keep keep the fires burning as it were, um, which actually led to fires burning. And uh, if you see any footage of or, or read any articles of um, those past days involving comic books, there was a lot of comic book burnings across the country. And this is just a few years. After World War II, um, when the Nazis would be burning uh, books and such, and then all of a sudden, uh, across the ocean, Americans were burning comic books by the thousands. And that's why your comic books are valuable from that period. <laughs> yep, exactly. And and to to kind of uh, give give a context of the Ten Cent Plague book, there really, since it's a nonfiction book, there really is no uh, quote unquote main character. Um, but it does center very heavily on um, one of the uh, the focal points, I would say, of, of this time period in the history uh, of the comics industry, Bill Gaines. Um, and Bill Gaines essentially, um, for the most part, created the comics industry uh, and uh, was responsible for a comic company called EC, um, which essentially is the one that started or is the one that started the horror and crime comic genre and put out a majority of the offending, shall we say comics of the time uh, that people yeah. were, very, were very upset about. Um, and he kind of uh, owned up to that whenever we, you know, once we get to the, the, the Senate uh, subcommittee on juvenile delinquency and, and his testimony involving that, um, it, he owns up to that fact that it's it 
Bill Gaines essentially ended up being the fall guy for the comics industry, is what it boils down to. And 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 this book, by and large, focuses uh, uh, keeps coming back to him and his involvement in all of this. Yeah, the the results of the the hearings uh, basically dismantled everything that that he had, except for Mad Magazine, um, where you know just about every word that was in a title of one of his books became uh, banned, a banned word in comics. And there was a, a reaction to what was going on by the comics community creating the Comics Code Authority so that they could um, police themselves rather than have the government come down on them with uh, government-sanctioned sa- censorship. Which is what they were going to do. I mean, if 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 the Comics Code didn't step in as strict and as crazy as it was in those first few years, um, even after that uh, point, I, I can absolutely say, and at least in my mind without a doubt, if the Comics Code wasn't created as a self-governing body, then the government would have stepped in and done something. And I have a feeling they would have tried to and possibly successfully banned comics altogether. Yeah, and and it was it was felt, you know, by everybody, you know, and and one thing that um, people don't always uh, realize is that even Archie Comics was affected. Um, the day that the Comics Code Authority was created, all the the artists at Archie Comics had to start uh, following uh, the guidelines of not draw, drawing cleavage, making sure that. Uh, all the women in the comics, Katie Keene, uh, Betty and Veronica, were wearing um, collars that were up around their necks. Um, one of the things that Wortham wanted to happen was that women had to be, in comics, had to be portrayed as proportions like normal women. No cheesecake, no uh, absurd proportions to the hips or to breasts. So No vampirella. Um, <laughs> Yeah, uh, so so even like Archie comics, you know, which everybody just assumes is a kids comic, suffered from uh, what was going on. Yeah, and and they, they were all scared. Every, every single publisher was terrified of what was going on. Yeah, uh, and and that is that is absolutely something that is covered um, in Tencent Plague for sure. Um, one of which is. Uh, it just in the book itself, there's a list of every person who worked in the industry at the time who, after the Senate subcommittee uh, hearings and the um, uh, Comics Code creation, never once worked in comics again. And that list is at least 100 people long. Um, so not only were they running scared, but I'd also had a, a quote um, uh, from from this book that I had highlighted. Um, we're talking about... Uh, this is this is after the creation of the Comics Code and them taking uh, some books to the Comics Code to be uh, published and approved and stuff. And um, one of them just uh, went up to his boss after an interaction with the Comics Code and said, well, why don't we just tell them to go foof themselves, I said. Oh, the big boss said, the printers won't print. I said, are you kidding? He said, no, they're scared. They won't print without the seal, the distributors won't ship without the seal, and the newsstands won't sell without the seal. Without the seal, we're out of business. And then I understood how big and bad this thing had gotten. And uh, that's that's just kind of the the one of the uh, things I, I read that just kind of really hit home about how 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 this 
affected and changed the industry. Um, and, and, and as inactive as uh, the comics code has been the past few years, we didn't. Well, off- it's it's dead now. Well, yeah, it's dead now. Uh, we didn't officially get rid of it until what two, three years ago, if that. Two, two. It started dying in two thousand nine. I think it 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 Archie was the last one to pull out in two thousand eleven. Yeah. See, so so the comics code wasn't playing much of a role uh, when it was active these past 10, 10, 15 years, but it didn't officially go away until just very recently. Yeah, and it changed its its rules in the 70s, which is like at the, the period in the, in the Bronze Age when Marvel started printing Tomb of Dracula and Frankenstein and Wolfman and that kind of thing. That's when it loosened up because they were to a point where they were acknowledging that that there were certain types of, of attitudes that could be um, held towards um, the the living dead and criminals that would be acceptable. And then uh, Marvel was the first to jump on that band, bandwagon and, and take advantage of it. And that's evident in a lot of the historical series that you see mentioned when people start discussing about um, historical series. For instance... Green Lantern, Green Arrow, um, the uh, and also Marvel's take on uh, Harry Osborn doing drugs in, in comics. But when Speedy was portrayed as shooting up heroin on the cover of one of their comics, that was when things kind of really started to change after that point. It's because, and we're getting ahead of ourselves, but at, at, it started to change because you weren't supposed to depict drug use in any form. But a story like that that shows you the dangers of drugs and what taking them can do to you and what can it can do to those around you, they started to understand that, you know what, there is merit in the stories that can be told, um, not just uh, uh, the stories themselves, but in the comics medium because of the audience it reaches and the, the comics code decided, you know, in, in the 70s, as Mike said, to, to start laxing some of their more restrictive guidelines so especially when you have the big two kind of making their moves and saying you know well we're going to publish this book you know whether you like it or not and Mm -hmm. they do and you really see that the comics code authority in the 70s has absolutely no power yeah Uh, and that's that's uh, evident uh, especially with um the the, the story that uh, Marvel published about Harry Osborn taking drugs, that was one where Stanley went up to him and they said, well, you can't, you can't do this. And they said, you can't do this with the drugs. And he was like, you know what? And then he went to his editors or the publisher and said, you know what, can we do this? And they're like, you know what? Sure, Stan, go ahead. They took a gamble. And that was one of the first comics in years that had been published without the code's approval. And when they saw the feedback that got, that probably kicked up into high gear to allow something like Green Lantern, Green Arrows, uh, Speedy Does Drugs, uh, Snowboard, Snowbirds Don't Fly storyline to uh, come into existence. Um, uh, um, something I should have asked you earlier. Do you want me to approach this um, from the direction of people that know nothing about the Golden Age? Yeah, I mean, however however you want to approach okay. it, really. Um, okay. Go ahead. Because you, you, you start out with the Golden Age of comics and in, in the – in the 1930s and 1940s, all through World War II, um, 
comics flourished in America. It was a, a legitimate form of entertainment. Um, adults read them, kids read them, teenagers read um, the the troops overseas um, lived off of comics. You know that was that was something that was highly treasured. You know that was their connection. You know to back home and gave them you know some respite because you you don't have the internet, you don't have cell phones, you don't have um, even a good mail system at that point because of the war. Um, so um, you know s- certainly comics were were used to a degree as a, as a propaganda tool, but it was, it was mainly just entertainment and it wasn't entertainment specifically targeted towards a set age group. It was just entertainment. You know, um, you hit, um, after world war two, um, the public started to, to get sick of characters that were infallible. They wanted to see things that weren't just superheroes always winning, uh, and that's where um, publishers started to uh, drop their superhero comics, and they started to make Western comics, sci-fi, crime, horror. And then into the 50s, crime and horror became very popular. Um, sci-fi and Western were kind of like, and superheroes were kind of like niche genres, but the genre like that everybody read was crime and horror because that was just you know popular in novels and films. Um, and then, you know, in the fifties, you start to get the, the people wanting to become more conservative and pull back from, from what was going on. And that's where everything started to, to boil because by then, um, the, the, publishers of the comics were taking a, a, a lot of liberties and they were doing all sorts of things in comics um you there's as we said before there's some le- legitimacy to what um the um what they were talking about with uh the senate and, and were yeah um that um like William Moulton Marston, who created and was was writing and drawing uh, Wonder Woman, you know, he was accused of having bondage in in the book, and he was very vocal and forward about, yeah, there's bondage in that book. Um, but Wortham wasn't happy with that. He would take it a step further and say that Wonder Woman was lesbian and teach girls to be lesbians. It was like a guidebook to how to be a lesbian. Um, Wortham had that uh, Superman was un-American and fascist, which, uh, yeah, especially at that point, you know, he was still, you know, pretty much, you know, a poly purebred type character, so that was a little absurd. Uh, but it was coming from his alien, you know, origin, and um, something that still goes on to this day is that he was accusing Batman and Robin as, as being gay partners, and. He was getting that information from homosexuals telling him that because they saw that as as like their hero. Um, and that's never really gone away because it's it's dubious, you know. Yeah. And and you mentioned uh, about the uh, soldiers taking and, and reading comics as well. Uh, the Tribune mm-hmm. ran a piece um, talking about uh, re- retaliating to the um war on comics at the time and they mentioned that in their own article you know it is not enough to sh- to prove uh 
it's not enough proof to show that juvenile delinquents read the books. So did the Marines on their way into Iwo Jima. And, 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 and it was a heavy debate back then. But what you were saying um, about kind of the, it was kind of open to any and all, and, and the kind of stories that were um, being told, there were two things um, that of note in this book that really uh, drove that point home. One of which is from um, Joe Kubert himself, a quote uh, from him who, you know, uh, Joe recently passed away. Um, and, and this is just something I found in there uh, about uh, the, the comics industry. It was wide open. Nobody knew what they were doing, said Joe Kubert. If you wanted to do comics and you had a little bit of talent, hell, even if you didn't have any talent, there was work for you. Maybe you had a lot of ta- talent, but you had a different kind of style, something unique and different, that the art directors in the slick magazines didn't like. You could be a genius, you could be a nobody, a little kid from Brooklyn like me, or some kind of nut. The doors were open to any and all. Uh, so that was just kind of what Joe felt was the, the first um, the first uh, inklings of the comic book industry really getting started. Um, a lot of these kids... Yeah, there was there was a, a lot of, of publishers were just desperate to have pages to publish, and they would, you know, give the job to anybody. You know, it, it wasn't a matter of, yeah. of really quality control. It was a matter of how many books can we get out there and how much money can we make. Mm-hmm. One, other, one other thing um, that really caught my eye um, regarding how crazy things were was Erwin Hassan. Uh, I'm probably saying his last name uh, wrong. Um, but he, he joined um, Chesler. Um, I can't remember what, uh, what uh, Harry Chesler, uh, what company he published uh, books under. Um, crap. Um, anyways, um, Hassan uh, did a story for, for the, the, the publisher uh, uh, Chesler. And he says uh, th- this book um, mentions a particular interaction between the two. Um, after after his publisher had given him some praise about the, the the work he had done that day, at the end of the day, as Hassan cleared cleaned up his materials, he realized that he had inadvertently given Chester only the top page of the story he had done. All the sheets of drawing board underneath it were blank. That's when I learned something about the comic book business. Uh, something about the comic book business at that point in time, Hassan said, it was going gangbusters. No matter what you did, and nobody was really paying attention. Nobody cared what the heck was actually on the pages. It's true, they could be blank, and nobody would notice. I wouldn't be surprised if Chesler sent those pages to the printer. So that's just just uh, one of the one of the things I, I noticed uh, when I was reading this book. It's just. It was so popular and so run by, I don't want to say big business, but just people who were seeing something that was was picking up in popularity and selling like crazy and just riding the wave. And they didn't care what was out there as long as they kept up sales. And, and that is the only way in which I give Wortham or anyone else any merit to the criticisms that were, were brought upon the, the comic industry at the time is because nobody was paying any attention and they were just publishing anything and everything that worked to make a buck. And in the climate of that time, the, and as I stated earlier, the moral and, and kind of conservative, religious, whatever climate of that, that time period in American history 
that kind of stuff wasn't going to fly very long. And it's not surprising that, that people cracked down and cracked down hard. Yeah. And it was, it was something that was, that was, you know, working its way down too. Cause in the, the late thirties, um, they went after the film industry and, uh, started regulating what could be, uh, seen and not seen in a, in a motion picture. And there was a huge, close to a decade long fight about that. And then by the end of that, you have television and then television got attacked, but television learned its lessons from, from film. So it wasn't, it didn't start out as loose as film did and, and it didn't need to pull back as far as, as anybody. So it kind of just snuck under and then, you know, comics got attacked. Eventually music gets attacked. Music is its own beast. So, you know, it, it just went everywhere. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's definitely something that you you could see it was coming and, and it wasn't, it wasn't that the industry was asking for it, but but they 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 did need some sort of of control system. Mm-hmm. And when you when you talk about new artists, new writers, and stuff today in today's comic industry, you can't help but you know oh uh, let's say like uh, uh, for instance I can't remember who did the art on the most re- the, the OMAC series for DC. Um, um oh um. Oh man! <laughs> <laughs> Come on, artist Mike. <laughs> no, um, whoever, whoever it was, it was clear to a lot of people who were, had history with the industry that he was doing his best Jack Kirby impersonation. So, it just it, that is an example. You you would think that these um, these uh, individuals in the comics industry at this time when this crackdown was occurring, because it was so new had nothing to go back on and weren't inspired by anything, which isn't necessarily true. Uh, you have to understand kind of where um, comics uh, came from uh, in that time. And it's between really... Keith Giffen. Yeah, there you go. Sorry. No, it's, it's, <laughs> it happens to me too. I guess it took, yeah, Keith, Keith Giffen and Omac doing his best Jack Kirby impersonation. Um, but anyways, in between the, like, the late 1920s, really late 1920s, early... 1930s and mid 1930s um a lot of people growing up in that time frame were people like like will eisner and and stuff like that who were reading not comic books but the sunday strips um and a lot of that stuff also there some of the pulp magazines uh came out um at that time um i think i remember some of the titles being like um amazing stories uh, i think i had another one down is like dime detective magazine yeah that that kind of stuff where these kids kind of grew up with that and then were inspired by those so it's it's not it's even even if um some of this stuff was inspired uh not by comics it was just, what is gonna it was gonna be inspired by other things like um this is an older uh, a program that came later but there was a radio program Maybe it became maybe it came earlier than even uh, in 1920 as well. But lights out, you know, scary radio programs and and stuff like that. So everything kind of begets something else uh, to some extent. But there were there was history there that was it's a, it's a slow build and a slow burn to get to the creation of the comics code and leading up into the last couple of years 
um, leading up into the comics code, it was Wortham who stoked it into a roaring fire. Or helped contribute, rather, to stoking it to a roaring fire. <clears throat> but um, just just for uh, reference, and I apologize to, to both you, Mike, and the, and the listeners for pulling out so many quotes from this book, but um, to get you guys kind of a sense of where the comics industry was in, in terms of selling, uh, and, and and how big of a business it was. I'll, I'll I'm taking the most extreme, most successful example here, but Action Comics, um, and the, the premieres of you know Superman and such for DC. Um, uh, so by its 19th issue, only 19 issues in, Action was selling some 500,000 copies per month, more than four times as much as any other comic. In 1939. National, which was the company that would later become DC, started publishing a comic book named Superman, and the company spun off a syndicated Superman strip in the newspapers. By 1940, Superman comics were selling 1,250,000 copies per month, and the daily strip was appearing in 300 cities. So, the comics medium blew up fast. Yeah, in in that in that World War II era, um, you have comics m- monthly regularly hitting the million mark in in, in sales. Um, you have um, the the formation of the Comics Code Authority that disappears, and it doesn't reappear until Todd McFarlane and Spider Man number one, and then it disappeared again. That's that's how much different it is. Yeah. And and I just wanted to ask, and this is kind of going off on a little tangent, but it's just something. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Mike uh, is, is an artist, uh, comics artist. And you've been finding, uh, if your Facebook post can be believed, sir, <laughs> been finding a lot of work in the comics field. So yes. with your history in art, from an artist's perspective – what do you see in terms of the build to the regulation in comics? I mean, what was what? what are, I mean, I, you you can read the books and kind of get a sense of what the stories were and understand why regulation was needed. What from the artist's perspective is it the same? Is it as is it as uh, intense, intensely needed? Um, I think it is. Um, it's it's something that. You look at the pre-code books, and there is some absolutely astounding artwork. Like some of the the some of the best written stories, some of the best drawn stories that, especially with the art, still influence artists today. You find those those old EC books, and you read them, and they just burn into your memory. And you you want to be as good as those people. You dream of being as good as those people, and had had they been able to keep going if if it was a perfect world and it was just those guys um then it would be awesome but the reality of the situation is it wasn't just those guys you know it wasn't like you know 12 really good artists doing these books that have been reprinted forever the only reason why we know about a lot of these is because they've been reprinted forever and and there's been effort because they're so good. You don't see the bad art. You don't see the bad stories. And 
when you get the opportunity to read any Golden Age comics, you find out there was a lot of crap. There's as much crap then as there is now. And, you know, like you were saying, the publishers would just take anybody. And you can see that, you know, there are comics that um, you would think an illiterate person somehow wrote them or, you know, your your mom decided to to draw a crime comic. And that's what it is. You look at the pictures, you don't even know what what kind of story you're reading. And the editors would add um, captions, uh, something that was it was kind of a, 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 a tool for the the artist writer at that period was just to have a, a you know an image in a panel and then a panel describing what was happening next, linking the story to the next panel. Um, but have to insert those to explain what's going on. And that's the stuff that you don't see and you don't know about and isn't really in the conscious of everybody. And as an artist, that's the stuff that really hits you is like you, you grow up seeing like all these heroes of your heroes. You know, I, I love John Byrne. I find out that he loved Jack Kirby. Jack Kirby loved all these EC guys. Well, that's awesome. But when you start to dig in and look at all these other people, you're like, wow, there was a lot of crap. <laughs> so you, you have to be mindful. Like the, the, the knee jerk reaction to, to learning about um, seduction of the innocent being a comics fan is you automatically hate Wortham and you automatically go, Oh, that was the worst time ever. But if we hadn't have gone through that, we wouldn't be where we are now. Mm hmm. And we wouldn't have quality control because up until the the eighties indies explosion, you didn't really have comics that were going too far out of the lines. Even um, underground comics, which was like a benefit of of Seduction of the Innocent and the CA CCA, um, had higher standards because it mattered and it meant something to the people creating them. Um, DC and Marvel kind of kept things under the wire, but that was also forcing those, those writers and artists to do things that they wouldn't normally do, which meant they had more control over the, the artistry. And you started to see new ways and better ways to tell a story new ways and better ways to do things, which ultimately results in things like O'Neill and Adams, Lantern Green Arrow. Mm -hmm. So from my perspective as an artist, it, it was a good thing because it, it, it helped temper, you know, the steel of, of the, the creators. Temper the steel as well as, do you think it's possible that um, now just a little background on myself, at least for you and the listeners. Um, Mike's an artist. However, I grew up for the longest time in my life wanting to be a paleontologist. And then I realized I was failing every freaking science course I took in school and noticed I was passing all my essays. So I joined journalism. And from then on out, I've always wanted to be a writer. So you're talking to two creative people, a writer and an artist, who essentially any kind of um, restrictions on creative work not necessarily something we're going to, you know, okay, fine, that's cool, whatever. It's just going to kind of irk us in the back of our mind a little bit. Do you think that artistically the 
the way in which they restricted both writing and art kind of forced the creators not only to come up with different stories, but come up, at least in the artist's uh, perspective, change the way in which they approach the drawing of those stories to, to come up Certainly. with more new and better ways to show it to, 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 you know, different viewpoints and different, you know, I'm not, I'm not an artist, so I can't really get the verbiage right, but just different ways to portray it. Well, it's, it's, you, you know, from expressing yourself, the more you're told not to do something, the more you want to do it. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're given a set of limitations. You can't do all these really cool fun things but you want to so you start to find ways to get that into your artwork without the people who say it can't be there knowing it's there which makes you all hip and cool because you're able to to skirt authority but it also you know makes your audience hip and cool because they're able to grow and follow along with it Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's it, it kind of seems to me that the the industry did suffer um, after the the comics code authority went to effect. Uh, it's it's notable the amount of books that are out there. The fact I mean just take EC for example. I mean again a, a kind of extreme example to take, but EC eventually just dropped everything except for Mad Magazine, everything. Uh, and they turned that into a magazine format instead of a comic format mm-hmm. so that they wouldn't fall under the same rules. Yep, just to escape everything. And Because and, magazines could do all the things that comics couldn't. <laughs> yeah, and, and magazines. You have to understand that it, as well, as comic fans, um, both Mike and myself, and as individuals listening to this podcast, also comic fans, we are kind of used to the idea that... You know, and, and we brought this up earlier in the episode that comics aren't just for kids anymore. There's, they're, they're, they are definitely not just for kids anymore. Um, but that whole, as Mike said earlier, that whole mindset was created in this time frame. So for something to be calling itself a comic book automatically meant that was solely geared towards children. Mm-hmm. So. It it really it really um, zeroed in the focus on all of all of comics as a whole, regardless of whether it was uh, romance, crime, horror, westerns took a hit, even superheroes took a hit. Um, everybody went downhill, and it, it after the after the comics code went into the effect, all these titles disappeared. These people didn't start working in the industry again, and it's because of Partly because of, of of the comics code that you even I I would personally say you would even get something like a Silver Age recreation of Green Lantern or a Silver Age recreation of Flash because it was time there was some something happened in the industry that was so damaging to the amount of readers that comics had anymore that. It needed something. It needed some revitalization, which is why you get something like Silver Age Green Lantern, Silver Age Flash from Julie Schwartz in them. And you get like really weird reactions too. Like you know, Superman goes from being a crime buster and you know fighting overseas to being like all those weird what if kind of stories mm-hmm. where he's you know fighting a giant pancake and Batman you know doesn't really turn campy like it did in the 60s but it's on its way it's doing you know 
really silly things where Batman's going to other planets and, and fighting crime because he can't really fight crime here. Mm-hmm. And um, just something I, I wanted to, to, to bring up, this all would have blown up much earlier, except if, if not for one uh, large uh, world event, um, World War II. <laughs> um, this, the, the, the debate over comics was already uh, picking up steam. And this is just something I didn't, I didn't, I wanted to make sure I didn't pass over. It was picking up steam when it was first uh, made into an industry and started publishing comics. And the debate was rising in articles in certain papers, um, not by Wortham, but uh, in articles and papers, you know, certain you know, mothers' groups or church groups, schools, that kind of thing. And then World War II hit, and it just kind of it took away everyone's focus. Uh, on on the the quote unquote problems of the, the problem of comics, and, and much in the way that you know, for to to put it in perspective for even even younger listeners, much in the way that nine eleven took away a lot of focus on other world events and just kind of that was all there was was World War Two for them, and and the debate over comics didn't really mean that much, and it was it was kind of a you know, a more patriotic, a simple, uh, a more democratic time. Uh, and it was just, it, it kind of took a backseat and then it kicked back into high gear. So it's, it was something that was already on its way to, to becoming a big deal and becoming something that the American public felt needed to be addressed, but got postponed a few years. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Leading up into the creation of the Comics Code, uh, Mike kind of already touched on this. There was a a reaction by the industry um, before the Comics Code itself was created, before the um, before the the Senate subcommittee hearings uh, and all of that. Um, I can't remember what the name of the company called was called. Uh, like, was it the AMAA or something like that? I can't remember what it was called. I think so yeah yeah it 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 was basically the the comics play the comics industry placating the masses by saying they were doing something but didn't actually do anything yeah kind of a a beta bullshit version of the comics code the comics code that would eventually become um and so it's it's just worth it's worth noting that the comics industry realized something was going on and placated the masses to try and get them to calm down so they could keep doing their thing, but never actually took any action on, which kind of, the way I, I say it, kind of villainizes the, the comics industry, but... It's, it's, it's business. Yeah. It's, you know, I, yeah. There's, there's no avoiding that aspect of it. Mm-hmm. You know, t- typically, as comic book fans, we only ever look at the characters and the you know, authors and artists. We never look at the fact that it was a business and it was doing you know things that businesses do which isn't necessarily a good thing yeah and and that is that is something uh, again uh, it's, it's always been evident in in any kind of fandom and for us comic fans when the new 52 happened uh, just because lantern cast we're focusing D- heavy on dc um when new 52 hit Fanboys everywhere were screaming, "Don't get rid of my DCU! Um, you know, don't, don't, don't get rid of all this history." 
well, were the numbers there to justify it? Uh, even to me, uh, you know, taking a, 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 20, a hindsight 2020 view of it, <laughs> I, I, I guess it was justified kind of, but not necessarily to do it to the extent they did. Um, but either way. And it's not the first time it's happened yeah, either. Exactly. You know, it's that it, it needs comics need to be reinvigorated. You can't have the same soap opera running for, you know, 70 years and not have it reinvigorated. Yeah, and that that reminds me of something Marv Wolfman said. I sat in on a panel uh, of his when he was down here for uh, in Austin for uh, Austin Comic Con, and he was. This was right around the time the New Fifty Two was about two three issues in, so he was getting a lot of questions about it. And yeah, at least from uh, Marv's perspective, it was it's it's something that needs to be done in comics, uh, and he believes that because you know back in the nineteen sixties when the Silver Age started. Then 20, 25 years later, crisis, and then you know every every like 20, 25 years, there there seems to be something that just needs to reinvigorate the comics industry. Something needs to happen to get rid of the old guard and bring in the new, and that's just kind of an ed- evidence of what a business comics is. It, comics is a business like anything else. That's just something that we all, we've always had to keep in mind, but. <laughs> But even as both Mike and I say that we ourselves <laughs> have had moments where they're like, "Oh, it's it's you, you got to placate to the fans." <laughs> yeah. But um, it's 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 something you have to keep in mind when considering all of this, uh, the attacks on the industry, what the industry was doing, what the uh, public said it was doing, what it actually was doing, that kind of stuff is. Yes, it was being published for kids. Yes, there was a couple of things here and there, but it's also a business, and that's something a, a lot of people, uh, like Mike said earlier, when you when you are a comics fan and you first hear of Seduction of the Innocent, and you're like, screw Frederick Wortham, I hate him. This is what he did, and, and how dare he do it? There's a basis there. There's always there's there's always been a basis there, and you have to understand that it would, it, it was a business kind of going out of control for a little bit. And it was it was being it was being uh, published to kids, uh, and um, oh, and by the way, I think this is this is my moment of oh yeah, I just remembered, ACMP. That's 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 the old the old school version of the comics code. Okay. The Association of of Comic Magazine Publishers. Um, now, going into. Uh, this because I, we've kind of Mike and I have kind of covered this, um, you know, gone over certain points a couple of different times, just different ways. Leading up into um, the real fire in the belly of the public of America uh, regarding uh, the comics and, and the history uh, leading up into the creation of the Comics Code, there were other things happening. Um, in America, uh, with the movies and so on and so forth, that led um, the this, the government to take a step and create a um, Senate subcommittee on the issue or whatever of juvenile delinquency. Ju- juvenile delinquency, yeah. yeah. And when people bring up these trials, uh, typically, at least for us fans, it's the the trials on comic books 
yes and no. It wasn't necessarily strictly comic books. It was the problem of juvenile delinquency as a whole and approaching the dis- different aspects that people believed led to the problem. And there was a, uh, a a section of days mapped out specifically to confront the sub uh, topic issue of comics. Um, and leading up into this, and, and I, I, I stated earlier, uh, the, the the main character of this this book, if you want to if you want to call him the main character, it, it, it Bill Gaines, and he's been attacked uh, in print, on television by Wortham. Um, he has basically been vilified by all of America as everything the figurehead for everything that is wrong with comics, and. When he learned about the creation of the Subcommittee on Juvenile Delinquency, he specifically requested to be a witness, to give his testimony, essentially, and his side of the story on how he felt about comics. And he, I, I read a story in here, and this, this isn't me looking into the book and, and reading anything in particular. If I remember correctly, he went through multiple drafts on what he was going to say. He... Uh, called a, a friend in to help him write it. They stayed up all night. The guy was doing, uh, I can't remember what kind of pills he was popping or whatever. It wasn't like anything illegal, just kind of whatever it was at the time that kept people awake, coffee and then some other kind of uh, over-the-counter medicine. Um, so he could get this right and then going into the next day when he would actually make his statement to the to, to the subcommittee. And that day um, was... Uh, set aside for giving testimony on the comics and what was going on. And the first part of that that one day, this was a televised event um, at the time, um, was dedicated to Frederick Wortham's testimony uh, in which he kind of, you know, undercut uh, Gaines and kind of, you know, directly slash indirectly referenced his particular comics with him there in the room. And then they broke, you know, they, they took a break and then when they took the stand again, Gaines Gaines got gave his testimony, and this is this is probably if you've ever seen any kind of um, footage on this time in history, this is this is probably the moment you see um, uh, is Gaines uh, at the table looking down at his prepared notes and saying essentially, "I'm responsible for crime and horror comics. I started them," and. If you read his testimony, he gets off to a great start. And then when they start cross-questioning him is when things kind of really fall apart. Um, mostly due to the fact that Gaines had been up for hours upon hours upon hours and was finally crashing and couldn't really defend himself anymore. But for Gaines himself, at least, this was kind of the nail in the coffin. It was his testimony, for at least for a lot of people. Um, the, the way in which the questions were asked of him. So, you know, holding up an example of a page. So you see, this is appropriate for a children audience. And rather than explaining why Gaines's simple answer is yes, I do. Oh, can I, can I, can I read a quote for you? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. This is, this is right out of, out of Gaines testimony. Uh, this is Gaines talking to Senator, uh, Estes. Coffer. 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 Yeah. Uh, here's your May 22nd issue, referring to Crime Suspense Stories number 22. There seems to be a man with a bloody axe holding a woman's head up, 
which has been severed from her body. Think it is encased. Means, yes, sir, I do. For the cover of a horror comic, a cover in bad taste, for example, might be defined as holding the head a little higher so that the neck could be seen dripping blood from it and moving the body over a little further so the neck of the body could be seen to be bloody. Uh, Kef, Kef, what do you say? Kaufer? Kaufer. Kaufer. Or something. Um, you have blood coming out of her mouth. Gains a little. Kaufer. Here is blood on the act. I think most adults are shocked by that. That's pretty much the way it was going. Yeah. Very short answers from Gaines. And you kind of get the feeling. And and, and this is... The, I, I came away from this book not... I, I believe going into this without any um, reading, without really diving into it, that Gaines was made the villain unjustly. And by and large, I still believe that. But after reading his testimony, I can see why things really fell apart. The, it, I mean, Gaines was an intelligent man. Like, he was very business savvy. He was very well written. Um, we owe, as comic book fans, we owe a great deal to him. But he was not in a position that he was defensible. You know, having having a lawyer there doing what he was doing probably would have helped. Um, having uh, an idea of what kind of attack he was in for probably would have helped too. And the, the fact that he was so honest um, really hurt everything. And, and he was one of the few people that actually, you know, stood up and was trying to defend everything too, um, which I give him you know, so much credit for because, you know, here's one of the main perpetrators and he's willing to stand up and, you know, defend his art. Mm -hmm. And, um, and this is just something, you know, I was looking through some of what I had highlighted in here. And I think this kind of, um, sums up kind of gains his feelings in a way about what he does in his industry. Um, this is in the midst of, uh, you know, pre, pre the, pre-subcommittee uh, on juvenile delinquency trials um, and hearings. He, But in the midst of all of the fire that um, the comics industry was um, receiving, um, Gaines put out a call for contributions to EC's stories and characters uh, in Writer's Digest. Um, in, and this is 1950s, and, and he wrote uh, the following in, in the the calling you should know this about our horror books we have no ghosts devils goblins or the like we tolerate vampires and werewolves if they follow tradition and behave the way respectable vampires and werewolves should we love walking corpse stories we'll accept an occasional zombie or mummy and we relish the conte's cruel stories shock suspense stories do not contain supernaturalism crime suspense stories contain no shock these are logical stories in which the villain uh, tries to get away with murder and probably does. No cops and robber stories. Virtue doesn't have to triumph over evil. That that kind of stuff. And and if you read some of the EC comics at this time, I wouldn't necessarily say all of that's true. I mean, they'll definitely 
they would. Yeah, and, and another point that that the um, Estes was bringing up too was that in in the same book where you have a man murdering a woman with a gun, um, there's an advertisement for you know toy guns and uh, potato guns and pea shooters and stuff on the next page. So it in their in their view attacking it from the point of view of juvenile delinquency you're showing a kid this is what a gun is used for this is how you use it and then the next page this is where you buy it yes yeah that's true and and this is something we haven't gotten to yet but this isn't necessarily solely um restricted to this time frame in american history but there's something you have to understand about this the at least this climate um that you have to remember about this climate that is still applicable now. Um, well, kind of. Um, they don't really give a whole lot of credit to American youth. Um, there is a letter in this book, which I won't read, um, that is written to uh, an, a, a paper that published an anti-comics uh, article. And it was written by uh, early teenager, maybe a preteen, and he was defending comics and saying that uh, parents and adults should give more credit to kids and what they can handle, what they can't handle, what they can't understand, what they can't. And the following issue of the newspaper uh, in which this young man's uh, response was printed had nothing but responses to his article of adults saying that is clearly written by an adult. No one, uh, no kid, child can write like that, that kind of stuff. Uh, and nobody really believed in, in, in the say-so of kids at that time. And also something you have to understand is this is a problem. Um, and, and I, like I said, I, I agree. There's some content here that absolutely shouldn't have been for kids uh, of a certain age. Um, but there and but but it wasn't by far it wasn't the majority it was a very small subsection section of comics that were really bad exactly and, and and the the whole industry suffered but part of part of what happens here is is due to and this is actually something that's even covered in the book uh, somebody had written an article as well saying how dare you blame the comics shouldn't the parents be policing their children and what they read Mm-hmm. And and that is a, a debate that goes on today as well um, with ratings on movies and video games, you know, T for teen, that kind of stuff. You know, don't let your kid when you don't want your kids to see it. Don't let them access it. However, I'm not a parent, so I, I have a hard time placing that blame on the parents of the time myself. So, you know, when when you, you read the transcripts, what what's going on out, outside? Because the gains part is pretty much the part everybody knows. Um, what else, what also is going on is that there, there are senators pointing out that out of, um, oh God, I don't remember the numbers exactly. Um, let's say like there were 400 titles published in one month, only 14 of them were ones that they wanted to get rid of. And in, in their testimonies that to, for the defense or for the, um, the prosecution, they were interviewing delinquents that were um, picked up doing crimes, and then part of their their questioning at the, at the at the police station was, "Do you read comic books?" 
and the kids go, well, of course I read comic books because all kids were reading comic books. You know, it, it was hard pressed to find a kid who wasn't reading comic books at that point. So they could take that and use that against the industry, which was kind of insane on its own. But that's, you know, how the legal system works. Mm-hmm. And a little, a little, um, Side note with the the cover to uh, Crime Suspense Stories number 22, um, the the original artwork actually has blood dripping out of the the woman's head and blood dripping out of her neck. Um, Whenever Gaines got it, he loved it, but um, thought that might cause a problem, so he cropped it a little bit. Mm. So they weren't weren't that far off when they were – uh, accusing him of, of bad taste with that one. <laughs> yeah. And we haven't really given any, um, or at least I haven't said anything about uh, what Wortham himself said, but I do only have one quote from you know, Wortham highlighting. This is during his uh, testimony um, before um, before Gaines himself took the stand that day. Um, it, he says, uh, it is my opinion with any reasonable doubt uh, without any reasonable doubt and without any reservation that comic books are an important contributing factor in many cases of juvenile delinquency. I would like to point out to you one other crime comic book which we have found to be particularly injurious to the ethical development of children, and those are the Superman comic books, he told the committee. They arouse in children fantasies, fantasies of sadistic joy in seeing other people punished over and over again while you yourself remain immune. We've, we have called it the Superman complex. Um, and he goes on to say, I think Hitler was a beginner compared to the comic book industry, Wortham said. They, they get the children much younger. They teach them race hatred at the age of four before they can read. And that is straight from Wortham's own mouth. <laughs> During this uh, this uh, yeah. trial, and and I, I highlighted this one in particular because <laughs> the 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 trials where you see how much of a nut he is too. Yeah, he, when you read the transcripts, and and it was absolutely, uh, if not all of it, most of it, totally pushing sales of his book. Yeah, totally pushing sales of his book. Um, and it, I don't, I can't remember the, um, the, uh, the, the sales figures uh, before his appearance on the trial, but they definitely shot up afterwards, uh, and I have no doubt in my mind that that was his goal. Um, um, but there is something uh, in here that um, definitely um, worth noting, and, and we spoke about it when I when I mentioned that list earlier of people who never worked in the industry again. Um, Yes, comics was being uh, attacked, but haven't really yet drove home um, why, or not why, the effect on the individuals working in the comics industry. Um, just in this example, as an example, Marty Nodell, um, the creator of Alan Scott and later the Pillsbury Doughboy, um, he... Uh, in an interview that we have spoken about when we did uh, the Lantern Cast did our spotlight on Alan Scott episode, stated that when he, um, you know, did the creation of, of Alan Scott, 
he made it a point to work under a pseudonym because it was comics were essentially a dirty word and he wanted to make a, a name for himself in advertising and if he had his name down his real name in comics he firmly believed and was probably justified in doing so that no advertising company would hire him yeah you have to understand that not only was the comics industry being attacked but everyone who worked in it was being villainized to be was was being villainized were they were not like it was it was akin to if you're saying you're a drug dealer or a prostitute or something how dare you you know mm-hmm. how dare you work in comics that kind of a thing um and and i, I did have a quote again i'm almost done i promise with these kind of things <laughs> from will eisner himself uh, I had had it, Eisner said. It was very dispiriting. You were held in disdain if someone knew what you did. During all the years I was putting my heart and soul into the spirit, I got very little attention. I got very little fan mail. There was no such thing as intellectual criticism of comic books. Nobody was writing anything about them except to say how terrible they were. And I wasn't the only one tr- trying to do something good. There was Harvey Kurtzman and a lot of other people at EC and some others were very creative and serious about what they were doing, but nobody cared outside of comics. I felt that nobody was paying attention except the readers, and they were mostly kids, so nobody took them seriously. And that's from Will Eisner himself, someone who is the par- one of the, the paramount legends in the comics, comic industry. Even he was villainized for his work in the industry. <laughs> it never ends. <laughs> it, it, it and the reason I the reason I I, I feel like this and kind of it, it's not that there's not a lot to say. It's just that this was such a, a hard thing for me to read about because I do love this industry so much. I may not be involved in it to the extent that like Mike is and actually putting out content and and adding to it, but. It's, it's something that, I, as I stated at the very beginning of the show, I, I've recently dug, dug into within the past few years and I'm already so enamored with it and so captivated by it that I am seeking any and all knowledge I can possibly get on the subject. And to read about people being so close-minded in an industry that was, okay, yeah, we, we stated earlier that the, the Comics Code allowed the industry in in some ways in many ways to grow uh better than before but to to think about what could have been and and what we could have experienced had these hundred plus people that are listed in the back of this book been allowed to stay in the industry and weren't villainized and to, to think about what could have been really sucks the energy out of me <laughs> Because I I can't help but think how many cool things could we have had in the industry? What I mean, even just DC in general, what would Superman have been like? What would Wonder Woman be like? Would there be a Green Lantern? I mean, like, what would everything could have? Yeah, I I actually think similar thoughts. Like, if if we, you know, like in the the late '80s, early '90s, start to see. 
mature reader comics, and then you hit the 2000s, and comics are becoming a form of literature in legitimate society. Um, if we hadn't have had what happened and creators like Eisner were able to keep pushing the medium as he was then, you know, all this stuff could have happened, you know, 40, 50 years ago instead of now. And now we would be on to, to it's commonplace. Watchmen is commonplace. Most, most books are Watchmen. And, you know, go ahead. No, I was going to say like that's kind of kind of bullshit too because you look at literature, how you know how many you know great books do you have a year? That's true. But the the potential would be greater than what it is now. Oh come on, man! You don't like Fifty Shades of Grey? <laughs> <laughs> I promise I stay away from that book. <laughs> <laughs> but and, and, and yeah, it's like how and. And not not just that. What would culture itself for, forget? What stories could have been told and where characters could have been, if those, um, if let's let's say the types of stories, just for instance, in Green Lantern, Green Arrow, let's say that type of story where you were allowed to show the dangers of drug use and stuff, because it was communicating to such a wide audience of children. If they would have gone that way before the comics code, you know, came about and, and everything was stifled for a while, what would have what would have youth culture been like? What would have everything what would everything have been like if this medium was allowed to continue to communicate communicate to kids? It would have been a utopia. <laughs> yes, it would have. The the long lasting peace and the end of hunger. <laughs> and you Frederick Wortham, damn you. <laughs> <laughs> and um, this this is the last thing I'll, re- I'll read directly from this book. Uh, and this this does not um, go into the every single bullet point um, that was uh, published by the um, the Comics Code. But these are some of the rules listed in this book that the Comics Code came up with um, in its first uh, iteration. Now. As we stated earlier, it went through a lot of edits and changes, uh, became less and less, became more lax. But the very first iteration stated uh, a few of the following. Policemen, judges, government officials, and represented, uh, respected institutions shall never be presented in a way as to create disrespect for established authority. Uh, no comics shall explicitly present the unique details and methods of a crime. No magazine shall use the word horror or terror in its title. All scenes of horror, excessive bloodshed, gory or gruesome crimes, depravity, lust, sadism, masochism shall not be permitted. All lurid, unsavory, gruesome illustrations shall be eliminated. Scenes dealing with or instruments associated with walking dead, torture, vampires and vampirism, ghouls, cannibalism, and werewolfism are prohibited. Profanity, obscenity, smut, vulgarity, or words or symbols which have acquired undesirable meanings are forbidden. Passion or romance or romantic interest shall never be treated in such a way as to stimulate the lower or and baser emotions. Suggestive and salacious illustration or suggestive posture is unacceptable. Females shall be drawn realistically without exaggeration of any physical qualities. 
Respect for parents, the moral code, and for honorable behavior shall be fostered. And lastly, uh, of the ones mentioned here, the treatment of love romance stories shall emphasize the value of the home and the sanctity of marriage. So um, I don't think any of those <laughs> are uh, in effect today. <laughs> See now, if you if you take all those roles and you make a comic book about them, that's a good comic. <laughs> you know, you know, actually, it's been a long time since I've read it, and I've only read it once. So, and I get a lot of flack from my DC uh, fan friends about this. But this very first one, policemen, judges, government officials, and respected institutions shall never be presented in a way to create disrespect for established authority. If that was still in effect, would we have gotten, um, say, the political uh, strings in, um, let's say, Watchmen? Or the one I was mentioning earlier that I've only read once, uh, Dark Knight Returns? Well, you'd never have a, a corrupt cop. Yeah. Or a bad politician or you know anything like that. It Basically, what a lot of this does is it takes the fancy, the horror, and the realism out of comics. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, and, and it sugarcoats reality for children. Yeah. That's 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 all it does. Is every single one of those is basically saying every marriage is perfect. Every cop, every political institution, every federal official, every government, everything is fine. There is no. It, it is all going to the betterment of America and the individual and the children. And don't worry about it. Everything's cool. Oh, and then you you get comics like Superboy. Yeah. 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 You get comics. <laughs> then you get it's like the uh, the crazy campy Batman and you know that kind of stuff. Um, and that that's really all I all I had um, as far as quotes and stuff. From, and it's it's not something I want to leave with as the comics code. So I just want to kind of do a little just a little bit of a wrap up um, kind of here is. Okay. The comics code, as a whole, uh, its 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 influence uh, from its very first inception, uh, including the the bullshit just to please the the parents, uh, ACMNP uh, version, all the way up to its dissolution in 2011. Um, what 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 do you see at least uh, as 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 the positives and 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 the effects? Uh, on this industry that you actively contribute to uh, since since its inception. Like, what, what do you see as 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 is there good that came out of this other than other than forcing you know you know artists to to find other ways and means of doing things and and kind of tempering the balls to the wall everything goes kind of storytelling. Um, what what has this moment in history contributed to this industry um positive light i think one positive thing is that um it it kind of set up the creation of uh the counterculture underground movement in comics uh where you have you know like robert crumb uh thriving and a lot of people, well, some people don't consider them real comics, but they are comics. It's, it's just another form of expression, but it's 
everything that those people wanted to do, they, they found a way to do it. And, uh, that alone created all sorts of other artists that, uh, were able to extend their ability to think and their ability to use, uh, literature and, uh, sex and drugs and, and things that actually affected real people, um, in a, in a much different way and, uh, developed its own style and its, its own language and eventually started to become mainstream. Um, it, it led to the creation of, uh, what we pretty much know as Marvel comics, the X-Men, the fantastic four, Thor, Hulk, uh, that, that whole re-energizing of Marvel comics in the sixties is pretty much a reaction to, to that. That's, you know, a group of people, you know, mainly led by Stan Lee going, well, we're stuck doing these, these crappy stories over and over again. We need to do something new. And, and it, it kind of forced this explosion of, of creativity. You know, you saw with with DC, you know, the, the, the Silver Age changeover wasn't quite as dramatic as, as what Marvel did, but it stuck. And it formed, you know, the basis of what's become, you know, all the, the, the legacy that the DC universe has had up until last year. <laughs> um, and... In in a way, it 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 got people in the industry and outside of the industry thinking of comics differently. You know, it, it it created people that were were not just blindly going, "Yeah, comics are for kids now." They were thinking, "Well, comics aren't for kids, but how do I go about understanding that and, and creating something that isn't for kids?" And it you know graphic novels came around adult storytelling adult being mature storytelling came around and i think you know it it's it's a reaction to any kind of censorship that that you know the artist learns to thrive and the artist rebels in one way or another and in this example you know as of 2011 the the artist succeeded mm-hmm. yeah that's 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 a good point um as as far as um, things we respect in this in this industry and we hold up as uh, tent poles and and the way to do things in comics, um, you've got Green Lantern, Green Arrow. You've got you know, even even stories like Crisis on Infinite Earths, uh, stories like Secret Wars. Um, even to take a more recent example, stories like Blackest Night. Um, those things wouldn't have happened if such a rigid comic code was still in existence. And so, on the flip side, it's particularly in relation uh, to Green Lantern, Green Arrow, wouldn't mean nearly as much without it. Um, it and it because it forced uh, artists, writers, publishers to cre- come up with more creative content and, and different ways in which to do things. It it forced them to take a harder look at the content they were publishing. It was um, because you couldn't do everything that you wanted and tell any story you wanted, whether it be complete murder, sadism, whatever the hell is going on in your book and just out and out evil. You had to focus on more 
personal problems. More, you, you had to find a way to communicate to your readers who even you as an industry at the time were understand, understand that they were growing up and could handle some more sophisticated storytelling. And remember that, but still through the comics, by, you know, falling within the lines of the comics code, understood that, okay, well, we don't have anything left to tell them, so let's tell them this. It's why you get stories like, let's deal with the danger of drugs. Let's deal with the danger of overpopulation. Let's deal with the danger of um, our impact on this environment uh, and, and uh, recycling and that kind of stuff. It's why you get such deep, meaningful stories uh, not to say that that wouldn't happen or did happen in the 40s and 50s, but it forced those stories out much quicker than if it would have just been allowed to continue willy-nilly. Yeah, and, and the, the, the you can see how like artists and writers had a sense of responsibility to the readers. You know, it, it didn't matter if the code was there or not. They felt responsible for what they were putting out and they wanted to put the best product they could. And they found the way to do it. They found the means to do it. Hmm. Which I, I think, you know, le- leading up to, you know, the, the Green Lantern, Green Arrow, it's, it's quite extraordinary. Because one of the things that... Um, was felt uh, during and after the the Comics Code Authority started was that, uh, I don't remember exactly what story it was, but there was a story that was going to be published that had uh, a black astronaut, and the the publisher okay. refused to publish it. No, the, the, the Murphy, the guy in charge of the Comics Code. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they refused to let it go, you know, because that, 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 that can't happen. And then here you hit, you know, O'Neill and Adams – you know, having quite possibly one of the the best socially relevant racial books ever. You know, you know where where you haven't gotten to it yet, but um, spoilers. <laughs> There's an African American saying, you know, you know, well, you you fight for the the pink skins and the blue skins yeah. and the yellow skins. What about the brown skins? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's 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 beautiful and poignant and and so intelligent and so moving and that happened because we pushed past all this stuff and not to mention in the same series uh and i already said it but it it would go on to to introduce one of the most popular african-american characters in dc john stewart who Mm -hmm. who would go on to become uh, i mean granted it was for for different kinds of reasons and such but became John Stewart is now one of one of the Green Lanterns that a generation recognizes as Green Lantern because of the yeah. the, the the Justice League cartoon. You know, when when they cast Ryan Reynolds, a lot of people were you know that were a little younger than me um, were going, "Wait, isn't Green Lantern black?" <laughs> because yeah, I was still I was still in the movie industry when that movie came out, and there were people that were really angry and confused by that. And it's it's because of a series like Green Lantern, Green Arrow that you get a character like that. Um, and and in the story you were mentioning uh, is actually a story uh, that was in in, in Tense and Plague. Um, Gaines presented a story to Murphy, the last guy. I can't remember his first name or last name. Basically, the guy that was in charge of uh, the Comics Code's first iteration. And 
this guy made it a point of while everyone else that was employed or whatever by the comics code would read these stories, Murphy made it a point to read every submission from EC. And they had come up with a story that wasn't approved for whatever reason. So Gaines was like, you know what, screw it. Let's just go get one of the old ones that we never got out. Or, or maybe it was just a reprint rather that they wanted to do. Uh, it was the last issue that EC ever published. And, um, uh, what had happened was it's the story of this astronaut, and this is me going from memory, the story of this astronaut who goes into space and comes across this world of self-replicating robots, um, some of which, while mechanically identical, um, are painted orange, the others are painted blue. And there's this whole story that uh, ensues, and it's only until the end of the story that we see the astronaut sitting in his ship, takes off his helmet, and he's black skinned and Murph. They took that story to Murphy and he was like, no, we can't have a Negro. I'm like where in the comics code does it say you can't have a Negro? Y- you can't have a Negro. Okay. So he took it back to Gaines. Gaines calls up Murphy. It says, what the hell is going on? Where does it say in the comics code? You can't have a Negro, blah, blah, blah. You just can't do it. You just can't do it. Gaines. Uh, I'm gonna call a press conference and blah blah. And the fi- Murphy finally caves and goes, okay, but you can't get ri- you, you got to get rid of the perspiration on the guy's forehead. I don't know why that's there. I don't don't ask me why uh, they wanted to do that. But Gaines essentially just said fuck you and hung up <laughs> and published it anyways. So even after the very the, the first iteration of the comics code, there are people rebelling against it <laughs> and. Publishing content that had poignant storytelling uh, potential to it, <laughs> and it never stopped Batman and Robin from looking gay. <laughs> never once, <laughs> uh, as evidenced in the '90s movie. <laughs> so it all failed. <laughs> <laughs> it's all a complete, utter failure. But but yeah, that that's a that's, that's a good note, as good a note to any to to end the discussion on, uh, so to speak. Um, I want to say one one thing because obviously I'm not going to be on future episodes with this, but um, I think fundamentally the difference between Stanley's drug story and O'Neill's drug story is O'Neill had guts. Stanley told what he felt was an important story that didn't really seem to have any information in it or any real consequence. And O'Neill told a story that was moving and factual. Because there, there are people that have said they read that and they didn't do drugs anymore. They read that and they knew not to do drugs. And there are people who read the Spider-Man one and didn't have much of a response to it. You know, it was an important issue. And what Stanley did was important. But I don't think that the story itself is all that important. Where the O'Neill story is incredibly important. Yeah. And that's that's a that's a really good point. Um and we've interviewed Denny O'Neill in the past on the show about it, and he was actually on the committee um, or the meeting or whatever that was called when um, they were talking about uh, Stanley's uh, story. And so that one came first, and it's still important because of that. But I, you know, even though I'm a Green Lantern fan, and I try to be um, try to be uh, gain some perspective on all this and take a step back and just see everything at face value. Mike's right. I mean, uh, there's, there's more to the con the content and, and what is being said in these rather than just showing pictures. 
You know what I mean? There's, there's, there's more here. There's more of a message here than just saying, okay, we finally tackled it. Let's move on. You know what I mean? So that's, that's, that's a good point. Um, but yeah, that's that. That, that was a, a good, a, a good note to any to to end on. Um, just, just uh, keep in mind that this uh, this uh, series of of this podcast will keep going, and and uh, uh, next, uh, I I can't spoil um too much because even if I tell you what's the content is, you might guess um, what's coming next. Uh, but in episode two. Uh, we're still not covering uh, any of the first issues of the series, <laughs> but trust me, it's well. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> hey, this this we we ape CGS so many times that we might as well just say it. <laughs> this is the less wordy sob uh, series. Let basically. This is to Lantern Cast what Crisis Tapes is to CGS. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say you're gonna spend an episode on a cover. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I don't have quite as much to say as Murder Peter did. <laughs> but next episode we'll be covering something. I can't tell you what because you might guess. But Mike knows what it is, and you're gonna want to listen. Yeah, you want to listen. <laughs> oh, that doesn't sound sarcastic at all. <laughs> <laughs> No, no. No, honestly, I'm, I'm, you know, if anybody's listened to CGS, they, they know I'm, I'm not really a Green Lantern fan, but uh, what you have coming up with the series, I'm, I'm gonna be a listener now. Oh, so sweet, awesome. You converted somebody. <laughs> <laughs> At least I have one listener. <laughs> You're counting myself. Uh, um, but yes, next episode, uh, definitely, uh, as far as a, a regular release schedule for this series, I'm not quite sure what we got going. Obviously, we still have the main show going, and uh, Jim himself uh, has something uh, in the works, maybe, maybe not. As of right now, we've got about, uh, as of this recording, rather, we've got about three episodes already in the can that have yet to be released. So as far as regular recording, um, I don't know. But there, there is something I, I will promise you guys, as with this episode, I am trying to be as prepared as possible. Uh, and then even whether or not it shows or not to you guys, I've read an entire nonfiction uh, a book just to, for this one episode, just to make sure that we really got into the meat of this and, and that it, you kind of guys got a grasp of what the history in the industry was leading up until this point uh, of a, such a historic series as Green Lantern, Green Arrow. But next we've got something else uh, planned. I, I've got something else planned that you're going to want to stick around for. And um, so if, if you guys uh, need to, to contact us, we'll go ahead and get into that information. But first I want to give Mike a chance to hype any of his stuff. He's had a lot of, work uh come up with uh comics i'm sure some of which he can't talk about but there's got to be something you can pimp god there's a lot of stuff i can't talk about because i've done so much in such a little time um i just got a another issue of mercury and emerge i believe it's issue four of the second season uh coming out from artery comics it came out with uh, baltimore comic con um i have a story in an anthology coming out from r comics the letter r dash comics from the Netherlands um, that uh, is available on their website, I would assume. I think it's published in November. And um, I'm participating in the year's uh, CE Publishers', publishers um, uh, Big Book of Comics. And I have some like super secret stuff coming up that 
like I, I'm under contract that I can't talk about, but there's there's comics. The career has started. So, <laughs> come on, Mike. Nobody's gonna listen to the show. You can. Say <laughs> no, it's all right. I'm not gonna make you lose this one. <laughs> this is this is good stuff. Um, so uh, if if people want to contact you, what do they do? Um, they can email me at MikeGallagherArt at gmail.com. Um, I'm always willing to do, uh, sketches for anybody. Um, if, uh, if you know any publishers that want some digital paintings for the covers, I can do that too. Those are hard to get. (laughs) Um, I'm on Twitter at uh, little Mikey G L I L M I K E E G E E, and um, DeviantArt is little Mikey G also, and you can take a look at what I do. All right, sounds good. Well, thanks, Mike, for coming on the show. It's it was awesome talking to you, uh, and glad to add you to our collection of CGS hosts. Um, oh, it's a pleasure. Yeah, you guys are awesome. We we try. Have you ever actually listened to an episode, Mike? Come on. <laughs> I listened to one. Uh, when I found out that Dan was on it, I actually listened to one. And I think I made an appearance on one from a couple super shows ago. It's possible. But that was my first super show, and I met so many people that I honestly have no idea <laughs> who I know from it. Well, to, to, to be honest... This is there are two things this show at least among its own co-hosts is known for one self-deprecation and two <laughs> when you were trying to pronounce Coovers or whatever his name is um, mm. that's something we do we have no idea how to pronounce anything so <laughs> you're one of us now <laughs> I've been I've been saying for years there needs to be uh, an internet site that just has names on it and you click on the name and, and it gives you an audio pronunciation of the name, at least for comic creators, if not for everything. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, the artist on Aquaman, how do you say his name? Um, which one is that? Is that Yvonne Reese? See, that's how you say it. There's been yeah. Yvonne Hayes, Ivan Reese, Yvonne Reese. There's, <laughs> we have no idea how to say it. <laughs> Nobody. And that's a running joke with our show. But uh, yeah, like I said, thanks for thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's awesome, to have you, especially for the first episode as well. It, it was uh, glad that you were able to to get on and do this with us uh, or with me rather, since this is this is my thing now. <laughs> Jim and Dan are no more. <laughs> You'll do a great job. You know how hard it is. <laughs> I, I do. I do. Um, but as always, guys, uh, if you want to contact the show, it's lanterncast at gmail.com. Uh, we have a Twitter uh, and a Facebook page. Uh, both just search lanterncast and follow or like us, uh, respectively. Um, the comic forums are no more uh, if this is the first time you're listening to um, the any lanterncast show. But if you go to our website, www.lanterncast.com, we have a temporary forum that we've made our permanent home um, in which we can talk about anything uh, about the show, Green Lantern news, anything like that. Uh, as always, you can find us on iTunes. Uh, search out uh, Lantern Cast and subscribe to us. And if you've got the time, uh, don't hesitate. Please go ahead and, and rate the show and leave a review. That really helps increase the visibility of the show. And um, 
lets us know how we're doing, uh, lets other people know we're here. Um, uh, even if you'd like to leave a specific review on Green Lantern, the, the Lantern Cast presents Green Lantern Green Arrow, you can go ahead and do so there since this show will be popping up in the regular Lantern Cast feed. So go ahead and do that. Um, and if you would like to contact me directly, my uh, email is chad at lanterncast.com. Uh, and I'll be more than willing to speak with you guys uh, in any way, shape, or form that uh, about what's coming up, um, what's planned, any questions you got for me, anything like that. Uh, maybe I'll even give a tease or two about what's coming down the pike. Maybe not. Um, and uh, keep your ears peeled uh, for the next episode. Uh, got great things in the work for you. Got in the works for you guys. And maybe I'll have a contest or two. You never know. So uh, until next time, guys. Uh, I'm Chad Volkelman, and he's Mike Gallagher. Thank you so much for coming on, and uh, we'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye. in these United States to publish horror comics. I'm responsible. I started them. Some may not like them. That's a matter of personal taste. It would be just as difficult to explain the harmless thrill of a horror story to a Dr. Wortham as it would be to explain the sublimity of love to a frigid old maid. What are we afraid of? Are we afraid of our own children? Do we forget that they are citizens too and entitled to the essential freedom to read? Or do we think our children so evil, so vicious, so simple-minded that it takes but a comic magazine story of murder to set them to murder, of robbery to set them to robbery? Ah, and that is that, good sir.